Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. We can map where we are, but how do we use location technology to build a more equitable future? Many policymakers, businesses, and NGOs are exploring how to leverage GIS, or Geographic Information System Technology, to combat inequitable policies and practices. America's oldest and largest civil rights organization, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, is one of those organizations. Its Senior VP of Strategy and Advancement, Jamal Watkins, describes why mapping technology is the logical tool to combat racial inequality. The goal is to link policy advocacy with a place-based framework that's rooted in equity and justice, and then looking at the facts to say, therefore, what? Esri's Clinton Johnson talks with Watkins about how data-driven maps have gained importance in the civil rights movement and help leaders identify and prioritize the most harmed places. Hello, Jamal, and welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Clinton, it's great to be here in conversation with you. Let's start by reminding people how maps have created and sustained racial injustice going from, I say, as far back as colonial times, but perhaps even further back and coming as far forward as redlining. What does that look like from your perspective? I would say when we think about the world today as it relates to the notion of privilege and inequality, it really is based on a primitive concept of, I think, scarcity and power and control and really, you know, putting and pitting communities against one another. Redlining is a thing that is known by many communities of color as being a problematic policy where maps were used to create and increase racial injustice in several ways. And when you think about it, these maps were created by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or HOLC, in the 1930s to evaluate the risk associated with home loans in various neighborhoods across the United States. And at that time, Black people, Jewish people, and other ethnic groups were not considered white enough and were considered a risk. And that racialized sense of risk increased with the darkness of skin tone. Can you share how the NAACP has translated maps into strategies that help to either engage communities more deeply or to advance your mission? When you think about human, human beings and the human experience, where you live is where you experience life. And so as the organization, the NAACP has continued to evolve, we understand that this notion of place-based work and place-based engagement is actually what people care about the most. And so if you were to pick a a topic like voting, voting is place-based. It's based upon the community you live in, a map that's been drawn by the politicals that says, here is where you live and who's going to represent you. And then you have to vote for that individual or set of individuals. When you think about voter suppression, it's also place-based, meaning folks are trying to make it hard in those same localities for you to vote. And so when we think about our work beyond just doing the baseline work of messaging in general for racial equity, it ends up being 99% of the time place-based. When you think about Jackson, Mississippi and the water crisis there, it's happening in Jackson, Mississippi. It's a location, but you can pop over to Flint, Michigan. They've had a water crisis. You can go to Baltimore, Maryland. They've had a water crisis. So when you elevate this notion of access to clean water and sanitation, again, it's place-based. And so I could go down the laundry list of examples, but I think the real nuance is that 
if we're going to advance the mission of racial equity and inclusion, we have to think about how is the world playing out for individuals and communities where they live? And then that really tells the story about the interventions and the policy shifts and the practice shifts that need to happen to make their communities whole and make those individual lives better. As you were describing the execution of that work with that place-based understanding, how would you explain that to people who maybe are still thinking of NACP as, well, just an organization that, that handles civil rights through court cases? Well, one of the things that is important about the NACP and the work that we do is that we are volunteer driven. And so we have 2,200 plus what we call volunteer units that are organized by geography. And so if you live in Anchorage, Alaska or Washington, DC or you know Boston, Massachusetts, you can join the NAACP, but it is a place-based reality, meaning you're organizing with other like-minded individuals who are volunteering in community. And what that really means historically, now that we are 114 years old, is that there are different ways in which we bring to life the racial advocacy work that we're doing, but it's place-based. So there's research that happens. And a lot of the research lifts up the nuances of what's happening in communities and in states and cities, municipalities. There's work that we do around litigation, but litigation is also in many ways place-based. It's dealing with what has happened to individuals or communities in a locality. And then we have other components where we do trainings, leadership development, convening, storytelling, and mobilization. And again, it is about where people live because the organizing and the connectivity is about where people live. And that all rolls up in many ways to us making aggregate changes to make life better for the communities we serve. But in many ways, the courts serve as a strategy and a tactic, but the fundamental organizing around people is in community. Now, you've also talked about how data is the seat of, of our power. Why do you say that? Well, we have heard the, the old sort of phrase that you don't know what you don't know. And so what we have realized in our work is when you think about this notion of owning data or even having access to data, I may pivot it a little bit and stretch this ownership continuum, that when you do have ownership and access to data and information, it helps you make a more informed decision. It's, it's sort of a baseline logic model. But now let's apply that to community activism. If you don't know what's happening in your community as it relates to, say, violence or education outcomes or what's happening in the economy, numbers and data that can really tell the story of what is, then how, how do you determine the best ways to advocate and lift up for yourselves and your communities the path forward? And so for us, you need that data and that access, that open access, if you will, so that you can make informed decisions. And what mapping and ESRI is allowing for us to do is not only to make the data that we want to own and need access to available, but to make it available in a way that is digestible so that folks can see themselves in the data and then understand, oh, this is literally what's happening in my community. And here are the options for shifting it to make the community better and to make our lived experiences better. So this notion of ownership really matters because if you don't know what the data is saying or what's happening, then it's platitudes, it's conjectures, it's feelings, as opposed to saying, wait, the numbers are telling the story, now therefore what? 
Jamal, you talked about owning the data. And one thing that's been really important in all this work that we've been talking about and doing together is making sure that people's lived experiences should be a part of the data that we're leveraging to create insights. Could you tell me, again, your perspectives on owning the data, particularly as it relates to how lived experience itself is data that should be integrated into our understanding? When I think about this notion of data connected to community advocacy and organizing, it almost presents a, a faux reality that you have to have a degree in statistics and you know understanding variables and algorithms. But what we really are talking about is how do you both analyze and quantify what is happening in and around and to communities and individuals. And to go a step further, what we have found in our communities is that many times there's an oral tradition where folks are telling stories and lifting up anecdotes. But in a research perspective, that could be considered a focus group or it could be considered a way to do polling and to take a temperature check of what's happening in a community. And so when we think about this notion of data ownership, in some parts, we own the data itself because we are the storytellers, the truth tellers who are articulating what we're experiencing but then there's another side where the data is not necessarily about what we say and what we're experiencing. It's about tracking the flow of, say, federal dollars into a community, tracking the number of policing incidents that have resulted in the death of a community member, data that is really about hard numbers that need to be more unpacked and contextualized. I would argue our goal is to do that mashup in a way, again, that makes it very easy for the average community member to say, I see what's happening in my neighborhood. I see what's happening in my city. I see what's happening around me. And here are the things that I want to see as interventions or fixes to make sure that what's happening actually changes for the better. And in some cases, there may be great things happening. And the data tells a different story that says we're winning and we're thriving and these things are working that we put in place. But it's that notion of having the ability to own and to work with and to nuance the information or the data, if you will, in a way that makes it you know, palatable for a community member. As we think about data and talk about data impacting policy, let's talk about the Justice 40 initiative. So the Justice 40 initiative means that the White House is directing 40% of federal infrastructure investments to those in need which should include underserved and disadvantaged communities of color. The money should go where public and private investments have lagged, been diverted or withheld, and where, where these disadvantages have caused generational disparities. Now tell us how using location analytics to distribute these investments could ensure that they actually reach Black communities and other marginalized communities, those communities particularly marginalized by racism. Well, again, let, let's start with something that's very, you know, baseline. Money gets spent on things usually that are place-based. Or, they, or, or it's connected to a location. And so when you talk about this notion of Justice 40, which is, I think, a great framework, you have to follow the money. Where is it going? Who is owning or holding the money, if you will? And how is it being deployed or spent? Justice 40 only works if the money is reaching the impacted communities and the intended communities 
and it's being used by those communities for their good. So when we think about this notion of mapping and how to follow the money, if you will, the only way that we can say Justice 40 has worked is did it reach the intended communities? Can we track that, prove that, and then show what happened as a result of? And, and I use these frameworks because for some of our folks, it sounds very confusing or lofty. The federal government wants to ensure that money is reaching impacted communities, but how do you monitor that? Where do you go to even see if that's happening or not? And how do you lean in from an accountability framework? We have to do the mapping of the money. What we will find in some places that the money isn't reaching the intended communities or the funds have been diverted elsewhere or they're not being deployed in a way that is value add for the black community and others who are marginalized by racism. So this notion of accountability and tracking, especially as it relates to funding like Justice 40, requires us to look at where and have a place-based analysis around not only where, but what and why. Sticking with this notion of, of economic impact and on this, this theme of money, uh, let's talk about loan forgiveness, which of course was a big part of the response to COVID-19. So extending that notion of loan forgiveness to student loans, GIS could have helped policymakers find opportunities to reduce economic burdens in Black households that could have reduced some of the elements of the, the overall racial wealth gap in the U.S. So how can the NAACP and other civil rights and other racial justice institutions bring GIS into policy advocacy work when situations like that arise? I would argue that when we think about, you know, this notion of economics and an inclusive economy, if you will, and economic burdens, the data that we've been talking about that needs to be owned and leveraged by community tells the story that there are certain communities that are economically underwater, economically distressed. I mean, if you were to physically get into a car and drive around any neighborhood, you probably can see visually oh, this community looks like it's thriving. This neighborhood looks like it has been invested in or the opposite. This community is struggling. This community is not thriving. So when we start to connect the dots with um, programs like loan forgiveness, it is literally around infusing capital back into the hands of individuals and households that really in some ways are, have been left out. And the irony of the, the work around student loan forgiveness, which has a place-based component there because everyone lives somewhere. So if you're forgiving student loans of individuals, you're forgiving that debt in a locality that hopefully will transform the economics of that area and of those individual households. When you think about programs like the, the federal PPP program, which was basically loans for small businesses, and I use small in air quotes because it didn't always go to small businesses, during the pandemic that were forgiven, there are many individuals who got these loans and they were forgiven. And in certain locations, those same individuals, some politicians who have said, it's okay for me to get my loan forgiven in the state of Georgia as a congressional leader, but it's not okay for my constituents who have student loans that are through the roof in some cases, to have those loans forgiven or relieved. And so it starts this dialogue around not only who deserves support and interventions economically, but where is it happening? Because there's some communities where it's gonna have a tremendous impact because you have critical mass of individuals who are burdened by this student debt. And so as we 
continue to connect the dots. The goal is to link policy advocacy with a place-based framework that's rooted in equity and justice, and then looking at the facts to say, therefore, what? So now I want to start talking about the future. And you and I, our, our racial equity and social justice team at Esri and leadership at NACP have been collaborating together on this important initiative called Mapping the Movement. And people can find out more about that online. But I do want to take a moment to talk to you about two of the components of, of that work. One of the parts of Mapping the Movement is using maps to increase community awareness and community engagement. Can you talk a little bit about what that means in your work at the NAACP as a community engaged organization and, and what it could mean overall to really the, the movement. As I think about this notion of maps or, or where people live, you know, what we realize is that geography matters because it is a, literally a part of your life. It's either where you were born or where your family members were born. It's where folks get married, where folks go to school and have experiences and you know, I know that nostalgia kicks in and folks say, I used to play at this park down the street, or this is where my parents taught me how to ride my bike on this street. And so maps have been with us implicitly because of the fact that we appreciate for most folks where we live, even if the experiences of where we live are tough or hard. If you fast forward to today, think technology, most of us are using maps through our phones or in our smart devices. People are calling for ride share services or ride services or ordering food. So I would argue when you think about this notion of community engagement and community organizing through maps, the technology and the realities of today have set it up so that people are living with and engaging with maps in a different way more than ever at their fingertips. So then the question becomes, what does it mean for how you actually advocate for yourself? And it's not a hard pivot, but it's a pivot. And so it's getting people to understand that the park that you enjoyed down the street, it may not be there in the same conditions because the funding hasn't been renewed to take care of it. Or the street that you were riding your bike on as a child and learning how to be independent on that bike may be wrought with violence and, and shootings and other forms of violence that literally you can't actually ride a bike or down that street anymore in a safe way as a child or an adult. And so we start to really connect the dots and say where you live matters. And because of where you live matters, let's unpack what it looks like in terms of where you live and connecting those dots. And so in many ways, the notion of mapping the movement is not some theoretical exercise. It is starting with the lived experiences of people where they live. And it feels very organic and you just have to you know, ramp it up a notch to say, now let's look at some of the things you may not be considering, like why in the heck is it so hot in your community? It could be that trees weren't planted 30, 40 years ago in your community, and that was a choice by your city council or your mayor. And why was that choice made? And how do we reverse that choice? And how do we intervene? And so I think as we continue to think about this notion of it really is rooted in experiences and place-based realities, it helps us to make the leap from what we normally do with maps, ordering food, you know, figuring out where we're going to go to our next destination, to thinking about what does it mean in terms of racial equity and justice and the policies and practices that can help make life better. Jamal, thank you so much for joining us today. Clinton, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. 
And thanks to Jamal Watkins for explaining how the NAACP combines technology and geography to tackle racial injustice. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.